Brothers and sisters, have you ever been asked to introduce yourself in a group or maybe uh, in an interview by way of a few brief words? If you have, how did you do it? Uh, If not, how would you do it? What are the basic things that you would say about yourself to tell a gathering of people who you are? Hello, I am first name and last name. My parents are such and such. Uh, I came from such and such town. It really is interesting to think about how we introduce ourselves. It, it draws out of us things that we think are the most interesting things about ourselves, the things most worth telling. But would you ever think to introduce yourself as a sinner? Would you ever introduce yourself by way of a, a list of the sinful things you have done over the course of your life? Uh, hello, I am first name and last name. Uh, in first grade, I cheated on a spelling test and have never confessed this sin until now. Uh, I stole a candy bar from the store when I was eight. I, I told a lie about a classmate when I was ten. I, I, I've talked back to my parents many times over in the course of my life. I, I cheated on my taxes when I was 26. I, I've lost my temper uh, too many times to count in my relationship to my spouse. We don't say such things. We don't introduce ourselves as a sinner, certainly not by naming the many things that we have done in violation of God's law. And yet that's what God's word does for us as we get to know the people of God, starting already in Genesis. It's no small matter. It's uh, it's no... It's no coincidence that, uh, that the first recorded sin after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin is the sin of murder. Cain killing his, his brother Abel, although actually the, the first recorded sin after the fall was really jealousy and covetousness. God favored Abel's uh, offering over Cain's so that he was angry and, and he hated his brother and, and made plans to kill his brother even in our day, the, the intent to kill is, is wrong. Conspiracy to commit murder is a crime, whether or not the, the killing actually takes place. But, but Cain planned a murder, and Cain carried out a murder, and Cain killed his brother Abel. And might there have been a, another sin, a, a lesser sin that occurred prior to Cain killing his brother. Uh, might we have heard that Adam lost his temper with Eve, that Eve disrespected her husband Adam, uh, that some bad language was used, some grumbling was heard, some lies were told. Instead, we are told that Cain killed his brother as the first recorded sin after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. The point is surely to to teach us the severity of the fall and the depth of sin now within the heart and behavior of mankind. Sin is not a minor matter, and sin is not something to be hidden. And the same practice, the same pattern, is found in God's word from there onward, from Adam to Eve to Cain and Abel, to the flood of Noah, to the Tower of Babel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's word does not hide sin, but rather tells of it openly 
speaks of it and it exposes it for all to see and to know. The first point, therefore, looking this morning at Romans 11, 1 through 10, is the scandal of Israel's history. Romans 11, verses 1 through 10, the scandal of Israel's history. The point has been made before uh, that in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul does not go easy on his own people. In fact, so tough is Paul, we might say, on his own people that he pauses at the start of chapter 10, do you remember, to clarify something. He writes in in Romans 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It would seem that Paul wanted to make it clear that, that he did still love his own people. And this is true of, of any preacher yesterday and today. The call to preach is the call to preach both sin and salvation. Without the conviction of sin, there will be little interest in the gospel. So if you recall, Paul used the first two and a half chapters of his letter to the Romans to teach sin, and thus the need for salvation. And thereafter, we have, we have heard Paul repeatedly charging his people, his own people, the Jews, with sin and with failure and with scandal. And now in Romans 11, he does something similar. He starts out by asking, has God rejected his people, worse than Paul hating and rejecting his people, has God rejected his people? Again, we need the last chapter as the starting point. In Romans 10, Paul writes of how the gospel was going out now into all the world. The gospel was being preached to the Gentiles, while Israel, Paul's people, had largely rejected the gospel. So what was going on? Was God done now with Israel? Had he rejected his people? Once again, we hear one of Paul's by no means. By no means, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Paul was pointing out Uh, that there were those among his people who did believe. Uh, He was was one of them. We we hear the same thing from, uh, uh, or or in the opening of John's gospel, when, when John writes of Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If that's all we heard from John, we might uh, hear him uh, to say that zero, none, of the people received him, but that's not what he says because he continues, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In the same way, Paul writes, has God rejected his people by no means, for I myself am an Israelite. It might be hard for us to understand the the need for this teaching from Paul, but, but the issue is this. How do we understand that while God made his promises to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Israel only, yet now the promises of God made to Israel are being fulfilled among the Gentiles who are not descendants of Abraham? 
And so to answer, Paul gets tough with his own people again. He, he starts with what, um, uh, with what we already heard. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's another way of saying uh, what he wrote in Romans 9, verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So Paul presses the point that it's always been this way. In his day, uh, he was uh, seeing his own people largely, not completely down to every last person, but, but he saw his people largely rejecting the covenant promises of God. And it was just like during Elijah's day. In verse 2, Paul recalls the story. Do you not know the, uh, what the Scripture says of Elijah? And I think it's kind of a rhetorical question. Of course you know what the Scripture says about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, said Elijah, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Well, of course, it wasn't true. Not to belittle Elijah's suffering and the persecution he endured from his own people. Sound familiar? But he was not the only one left. Paul, Paul recalls the, the answer that God gave to Elijah. But, but what, what was God's reply to him, writes Paul? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not the only one left, Elijah. There are 7,000 others beside you. I don't know, and I don't know that any scholars know, what the total population of Israel was at that time, but, but 7,000 was a very low percentage of the total population of Israel, a sliver, a, a far less than 1%. So small was the percentage of God's people who had not gone over to Baal that it's a wonder that it brought any great comfort to Elijah. But at least he wasn't the only one. So the second point, the revelation of grace. Because the next question is, and, and this is Paul's main point, where did they come from, these, these 7,000 faithful of God's people? And the answer, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Otherwise, we, we might be tempted to think that God simply looked and, and, uh, and found uh, 7,000 among Israel. But God said, I have kept these 7,000. It was God's doing that there were still 7,000. And the point is further made, as, as Paul explains, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Somehow, we, we always tend to redefine grace to mean God helps those who help themselves, or God saves those who are worthy to be saved, or God chooses those who first choose Him. But the teaching of God's Word is that grace is not on the basis of any works, if it were on the basis of works, then grace would no longer be grace. Once again, we must understand uh, 
the words no longer. Maybe it was uh, on the basis of works in the Old Testament. Uh, Maybe the 7,000 were chosen because they had managed in and of themselves to be faithful, and so God kept them. But what Paul has already written is clear. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So the words no longer must be understood as Paul's reference to his own former understanding of how a person is saved. And then he uses the words no longer again. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the Old and New Testaments are like a a coin um, with two sides, of course, and, uh, and you look at one side, and it says grace. And you look at the other side, maybe expecting to find something different, but there, too, it says grace. And this is the, the startling thing, and, and there can be no doubt that it is startling. This is how God reveals His grace by choosing those whom he saves, not for any reason in them, and also leaves others in their sin. And so Paul goes on to press the point further, starting in verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Again, Paul is tough on his own people. Israel failed, but not every last one of them. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This applies to both the Israel of old and the Israel of Paul's day. And he even reads in Scripture that this was prophesied by God. Uh, We like certain prophecies. Uh, The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, Uh, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We, We like certain prophecies, but here is a prophecy that on one hand might be confusing. On the other hand, why do we need it? From Isaiah 29, Paul quotes, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Once again, Paul presses the point that that was then and this is now. We usually say that was then, this is now, but that was then and it is now also. The words down to this very day are really Paul's own words. I'm not sure uh, why the ESV includes that in the the quotation marks. Uh, Down to this day are Paul's own words. When Isaiah first spoke and wrote these words, it it was an explanation of what was happening within the rebellion of God's people in, I, in Isaiah's day. But, but Paul sees this explanation of what was happening then as a prophecy of what would happen even in the day of Christ's coming. At some point, we, we really need to stop and, and, and point out to, to make it clear that even the unbelief of God's people was always part of God's plan of salvation. On one hand, the unbelief of Israel as Jesus came among them was their fault. How many miracles did Jesus do in the midst of his own people, and yet they rejected him? 
How many times did Jesus teach the people their own scriptures so that they might recognize him as their Messiah? And yet they did not and would not receive him as their Messiah. But God never said, this isn't working. I better try something different. No, the very unbelief of the people was part of God's plan. The very unbelief of the people put Jesus on the cross. And to be fair, it was, it was both Jews and Romans, Israel and the Gentiles, who crucified Jesus. But all according to the plan of God. The unbelief of sinners is not a hindrance to God for him to do what he has had in his heart to do, even from the foundations of the world. Paul quotes again from the Hebrew Scriptures, from Psalm 69 in, in verse 9. And David says, writes Paul, uh, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. These are harsh words from, from David. It's, it's an imprecation, as we say. It's a curse. But Paul teaches that even though these words from David are a curse, they are, on the other hand, a prophecy. And they are words by which David recognizes that the persecution that he experienced came first from an unbelieving people, but ultimately came because of what God was doing in his day, leaving the people of Israel, not all, but many, in the blindness of their sin. And so we come to the last point, the infamous reprobation of God. And let's just admit that this is a hard teaching of God's word. Reprobation basically means condemnation. But it's the word that is used in, in Christian theology to speak of God leaving sinners in their sin. In this way, repro reprobation is, is a kind of opposite of God's election. Uh, the, the point that Paul has been making all along is that God chooses those whom he saves and that he chooses them by his grace. Not because some are more worthy than others, but from his mercy. But what of those who are not chosen? Those whose hearts he does not change. Those who are not given the faith to believe. These are the reprobate. And this is God's reprobation, his condemnation for their sin. This is a hard teaching, but it is the teaching of God's word. We, we see it throughout scripture and in this very passage when Paul quotes Isaiah 29, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Again from uh, Psalm 69, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. We may not want to hear it and we may struggle to understand it, but God's word would teach us that God is sovereign even over unbelief. And here is where we find the difficulty in, in breaking up Paul's teaching, like Romans 11, breaking it up into smaller portions, because we really need what it says in verse 22. So I'm going to 
draw in a a later verse. Verse 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Another version says, Consider then the kindness and the sternness of God. As believers in Christ, we, we love to hear of the kindness of God the grace and mercy of God, the compassion of God. Do we not love to see the compassion of Christ as He walked among sinners like us? But we must take the whole teaching to understand and believe both the kindness of God and the severity of God. And and it's part of what we would call the doctrine of sin. Again, the, the, the book of Romans can be outlined by its content, sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. But on the other hand, these are overlapping throughout the book of Romans. Paul starts with sin because who's going to hear the gospel unless uh, they know the bad news? Remember the Remember the illustration, who is going to jump on the fireman's back when they don't smell the smoke and even feel the heat of the flames? But then how do you explain when two people sitting in the same room, filling up with the same smoke in the midst of the same flames, one jumps on the fireman's back, the other doesn't want to be interrupted from his television show? The explanation is found not in the person, one being smarter or wiser or wealthier. The explanation is found in God and what He is doing to save sinners and yet to leave others in the stupor and the blindness of sin. Paul's main point in this chapter is to explain what What happened to the promises of God? Israel was God's chosen people. His promises were to them. But as His promises of a coming Savior were fulfilled in Christ, only a remnant believed. But so it always has been. From even before the coming of Christ, the story of Elijah, the reign of David, the ministry of Isaiah, all show us that it has always been the case. Even as the promises of God were given, some believed and some did not believe. And so as Christ came, as the promises were fulfilled, some believed and some did not believe. And they did not believe, not because the promises of God had failed, not because God wanted to do something that was denied him, but because we must consider the kindness and the sternness of God. We must know that God is not obligated to save any, but is gracious when He does save those whom He, in fact, saves. So where does it leave us? First, the kindness and severity of God, His election and reprobation, they do not cancel out the preaching of the gospel and the call to faith. And the, and the call is sounded yet today. Let us hear the good news. Let us repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let us flee to the cross and cling to the cross and cling to Christ for our salvation. This evening, the Lord willing, we'll be looking at Mark 2. 
in our Mark series to, to hear the story of how Jesus called Matthew the tax collector and how by the very call itself, Matthew got up and followed Christ. But the call is sounded here this morning. The question is not, am I under God's election or under his reprobation? The question is, do you smell the smoke? Do you feel the flames? Will you believe in Christ to be saved? And may God grant to each of us a heart of faith in Christ the Savior. Second, consider the kindness and severity of God. There, there is no difference between sinners that would, that would determine, no difference that would determine that one, one believes while another doesn't. So as we do believe, it is only by the grace of God. If there were any degree of works in receiving the grace of God, then we wouldn't be receiving the grace of God. It wouldn't be grace. And, and God would have each of us as believers in Christ to know the, the true graciousness of his grace. The grace of grace, so to speak. Why do believers believe? Because God chose us from the foundations of the world. Because God promised us a Savior over thousands of years, even before we were even here. Because God fulfilled His promises for, the, for, for a Savior to come, because Christ has come, and He has co- accomplished our salvation by His life, death, and resurrection. And because the finished work of Christ for our salvation includes the heart of faith that he himself puts within the believer. Finally, let us not give up on those who have not yet believed. Here's another difference between election and reprobation, that that when a believer believes, we know he or she is elect because they believed. But when the unbeliever does not believe, we do not know yet that they are under God's reprobation. We only know that they have yet to believe. So let us pray for those who have yet to believe. Uh, Let us be a church that continues to preach the gospel, which, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans, is itself the very power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And if anyone uh, would leave here this morning, yet in, in unbelief, then come back tonight. And next week, continue to sit under the preaching of God's word and hear the gospel. And may God grant you faith in Christ and salvation by your faith. Amen. Let's pray. God of heaven, Lord of all the earth, you are sovereign in all that you do. Your grace is unearned, otherwise it would not be grace. Grant to each of us the faith to believe in Christ, and by that faith, salvation. And by such grace, grant to us the amazement and the thanksgiving that will lead us to live each day for Christ. In his name we pray, amen.